On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. For those listeners who have followed the dossier from season one, there's a story I've always been fascinated by and always felt that it warranted its own investigation, answers, and insights. That story involves ex-LAPD officers Frank Liga and the infamous Kevin Gaines. Now, before we dive into an exclusive interview, I wanted to set the table a little bit. I'll go back and reference an infamous PBS special done by Frontline. The setup is Hollywood-esque, to say the least. On March 18th of 1997, only nine days after Biggie was killed, undercover LAPD officer Frank Liga shot and killed off-duty LAPD officer Kevin Gaines. The shooting of a black officer, Gaines, by a white cop, Liga, created a highly charged police controversy. I've always wanted to speak to Frank Liga, get his complete story, not just what happened that day on March 18th. Although to hear him describe it in detail is very interesting. Liga's story, his fight with the LAPD and power civil rights attorneys Johnny Cochran and Carl Douglas and the media that is fine bending the truth to fit a narrative was all on the table as Frank agreed to talk unedited 27 years after that fateful day. It's altered his future. It's altered the dynamic within the LAPD in their continued corruption. So tell me, Frank, the moment that you decided that you wanted to be a cop. Well, it goes back to when I was a kid. I was like five years old. My father owns a construction company and I grew up on a dairy farm. And uh, all I ever wanted to do was be a state trooper, New York state trooper. That's all I ever wanted from the time I was a little kid till today. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I wanted to be an undercover cop. Wanted to work dope. So you grew up on the East Coast in New York and you have dreams as a young kid to become a, a New York State Trooper. So take me through your path that leads you to the LAPD. Well, uh, like I said, I was a little tiny kid and I had a buddy, his dad was a New York State Trooper. as about 6'4", 240 pounds quite the impression to a young kid. Um, he and I became close, close friends. So I worked, I got a job uh, in the Sheriff's Department and the Police Department, and then in 1983, I, uh, LAPD had the reputation of being the best in the world. Had the best uh, training, the best 
professionalism, everything. The best police department in the world. And I was uh, addicted to Dragnet and Adam-12 and Beretta. Remember the TV show Beretta? Mm-hmm. Well, my dream, I always thought I'd end up like Beretta. I never thought I'd have a bird. But I figured I'd be working undercover, living in a little shack and just going every day. And uh, that was my, my dream. I started the academy on July 7th, 1986. It was the first class out of a year and a half hiring freeze. So we were the best of all applicants in a year and a half or two years, whatever they were doing prior to. My class was the best class of applicants out of those two years prior and went from there. Now, I, in 80, I have a question. In 86, yeah. when you become a rookie cop, talk to me about what you see going on in L.A. as it relates to crime. Like, where do you live in 86? Do you live in a safe neighborhood? Do you go back to Santa Monica and live on the on the beach? What, what's your life like in 86? I didn't really pay attention to the outside crime. I didn't pay, I didn't pay attention to anything. My focus was graduating the police academy and uh, finishing a six-month tour. That's all I did. Uh, on the weekends, I'd go to the beach and study on the beach and hang out. I don't drink or smoke, never did. And uh, so I didn't do a lot, a lot of traveling and running around at night or in, on my days off. Um, I go to the gym usually twice a day on the days off. I'm just a, I'm just a boring, uh, you know, boring guy. So when you finally hit the street, where where are you based, and what what do you start to realize as a patrol officer inside Los Angeles? Well, I was uh, assigned Van Nuys Patrol for probation. You're on probation once you graduate the academy for a year. You're assigned to uh, two training officers. And basically, we always ride two men to a car. You're assigned to two training officers, and you went through, and you wrote reports, and you took people to jail, and you was guided by the patrol guy, by the your training officers. No, nothing, nothing different from New York. Same, same type of deal. Um, Van Eyes was at the time we had the, the drugs, we had the prostitutes. A lot of working patrol, we don't get involved with that. You do a lot of domestic violence, a lot of radio calls, a lot of uh, burglar calls. Four, five, nine. You know, let's just basic police work, writing tickets. There's nothing spectacular. You have to put your time in before you can go anywhere. Um, what's what was funny was about two weeks in, we're driving around, and uh, one of my training officers said to me, he "Goes what? He goes, uh, what'd you do before you became a police officer?" And I says, "Well, I looked at him and I said, well, I was a policeman." He goes, "Where?" And I said, "New York." And he says, well, "How long?" And I said, seven years." He goes, we thought something was up with you. He says, why did you say something? I said, I'm nothing here. I'm just a rookie here, no big deal. And from that point, I was treated pretty much like an equal. Um, they realized I wasn't your, your average academy recruit. I was allowed privileges that the average academy recruit doesn't get. Um, I worked in overtime detail in a different area. I went to West LA with a guy who was one of my academy instructors because I, I became friends with those guys. Um, we went to West LA. I worked in overtime detail, which is unheard of. A, a probationer in one division is not allowed to go to another division for an overtime detail to write tickets, which is you know, very fortunate. 
um, about that was I graduated December of 1986. About June, yeah, I'd say June of '87. I was standing in uh, in uh, West LA or Van, Van Nuys Division, looking at the RD map, which is a map of the city broken into areas, reporting districts. And I was trying to memorize the, the RD and learn my area. And this guy approaches me and never saw him before. He walks up and engages me in a confrontation or a conversation. And I was cordial to him. We're talking and uh, he disappears. No big deal. I didn't think anything of it. A couple of days later, I've been I'm in the same place, writing a report. I'm in the same place. The same guy comes up to me and engages me in another conversation. And this time he, he asked me if I uh, was interested in, in uh, doing a, a different job. And I said, what do you mean a different job? I said, I love what I'm doing. I love being a policeman. And uh, he asked if I ever heard of anti-terrorist division, ATD. And I said, no, I never heard of it. But uh, what are you talking about? He said, they're looking for, uh, they're looking for a UC, an undercover officer, an undercover officer to uh, work for anti-terrorist division. And the... Uh, was looking at me. And I said, well, that's mildly interesting. That's that's fine. And he said, well, are you interested? I said, sure. Yeah, I'll think about it. So over the next month or so, I met these guys. And, you know, it's all top secret. You can't tell a soul about it. You can't tell them anywhere you're going. You can't do anything. Um, you meet them covertly. And they ask if you, you know, were you followed here? And I said, I don't think so. I didn't really pay attention. I don't know if he followed me there or not. Right? I wasn't paying attention. Who's following a Pete? A P P one probationer in LAPD, going to a to a diner someplace in West LA or Santa Monica. So we're talking, and he says, "Well, he says uh, I want you to think about counter surveillance." Okay, I've, I've done that before, no problem. So we were talking in and out, and uh, and uh, for a couple of weeks, I meet them different places, and then I get a phone call, and he says, uh, "He says uh, we wanted to meet you down." The Parker Center, he says, but don't tell anybody you're coming, and uh, we'll meet you at the back door. I says, okay. <laughs> so I show up down at Parker Center, mild, mildly interesting. I go in, and there were two handlers, two guys that, that I were ultimately dealing with over the next two uh, couple of months, from June to probably uh, August, early September. I was dealing with two different guys, only the same two guys. They were in there, and they sit down, and so the captain wants to meet you, wants to interview you. In meeting Frank, you could see physical attributes of an undercover officer. He's got a long beard. And to go undercover in L.A. at that time, my assumption is you had to be fearless. This was the late 80s, the height of the crack wars. I can imagine working undercover at that time must have been a little dangerous. So the captain comes in and... uh... We talked for 10, 15 minutes. And then he looks at me and says, he says, uh, he goes, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He says, what kind of car do you think you're going to drive if you get this position? And I didn't think about it much at the time, but I came right back with him. I said, you know, I got no idea. Whatever you give me. I said, a Honda, Toyota, I don't know, something beat up, inconspicuous. And what what actually what it was about was, was uh, back then in the 80s, Miami Vice was popular on TV. And Don Johnson was driving a Ferrari and, and uh, that Jaguar or whatever whatever he was driving there, those fancy cars. 
and driving speedboats. And this guy thought that I was going to tell that, say that. And I said, well, what are you, you know, whatever junk car you give me, I don't know, whatever. I'm, doesn't matter to me. So we talked for another few minutes, and then all of a sudden the captain gets up and walks by me and slaps me on the shoulder and says, welcome aboard. And he leaves. And I just looked at, he looked at the two guys, my two handlers, and I said, what happened? He goes, he goes, I don't know. He said, we're looking at four other guys, he says, and I guess you're in. Congrats, he says. I said, oh, okay. So then, then we started talking, and now it was more of policy and procedure and what I had to do. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Toni Morrison, a mesmerizing coming-of-age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman too will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown, to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seeresses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife need a scintillating night out every once in a while at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. When you went undercover in those first few um, things, what was your character? 
what was some of the things that they wanted you to do or infiltrate? Like, I can't tell you. That's all. I had to sign a non-disclosure. What I can tell you is they sent me to New York. I went back to New York for six weeks and uh, lost my suntan, and I had to create a new identity. Basically, write up a, a brand new identity. So if I ask you where you went to elementary school, you can pop it right off the top of your head. Where'd you go to school, right? I had to come up with a fake ID or a fake name in the world. The city, the city of LA gave me a new name and a new birthday. They'd be six years younger than I currently am. And I was able to get a birth certificate officially stamped in that name and birthday in an hour. And I came back to LA with a, with a brand new birth certificate. And I went to DMV and uh, I went to DMV and I got my driver's license. My, my dad, like I said, my dad owned a construction company and I'm a mason by trade. I'm a concrete finisher and a block builder, wall builder, based on my father's growing up. <clears throat> so that was my cover job. I got a job as a construction worker and that was my job. And you're supposed to, you, you hook up with people, the criminals or your targets, and you may never hook up with them. You may never meet them. Say, say I'm working you. And you go to the gym, surveillance has you going to the gym every morning at uh, four, five o'clock in the morning. Guess where I am every morning at five o'clock in the morning? I'm at the gym and I'm not talking to you. I'm not in here. I'm not pushing you. I'm not talking to you. I just head nod like I do, like you do anytime. Give you a nod. Hey, how you doing? See you every day. If we nod too much, I may go up to you and say, hey, we, babe, can I mind if I work in? <clears throat> we work in. Hey, what's your name? Don. I'm Frank. Nice to meet you. No last names, no nothing. We work out. Hey, I'm doing uh, chess tomorrow. You want to do backward chess with me tomorrow? Yeah, sure. All right, come over. And we slowly develop. Hey, I'm going to have, after I get done here, we're going to go get, I'm going to get some breakfast. You want to come? I'll treat you for breakfast. And you slowly develop a relationship with your target, which is bad because you become buddies with these guys. You actually become friends with them. And then you, when the time comes, if you get burned, you're gone. You know, surveillance covers it, you're gone. But when the time comes, somebody else takes, you never take them down. Somebody else takes them down. But basically, you ratted them out. And you're my buddy. I mean, literally, you become my buddy. Even though you're a crook and you're doing what you're doing, we become friends. That's hard not, that's hard not to do. What do you think gotcha. made, what do you think made them recognize that you could work undercover and what do you think it is within yourself that allowed you to work undercover so well? well I don't know about how so well I'm, I was very lucky um, I don't know what they what they saw me like I said I graduated 16th out of my class I had great ratings throughout probation um, I was able to work alone I, I worked alone. They put me out because of my background, and I wasn't really your standard probationer. I was allowed to go out by myself, and so I was able to work by myself, unsupervised or minimally supervised. I think that's something to do with it. And then you got to be a quick thinker. Somebody comes up with a, ask you a question, you've got to be able to come back with it immediately, either a lie that you had pre-going or something sarcastic that takes the takes the mind off the thing. Like I was, I was buying dope one time in 1988, I went to the buy team, three level buy team. And I was buying dope one time 
and we were talking, and uh, somebody somebody recognized me. Remember the TV show Hard Copy? It was like a active news show. Well, I was there. I was there. Their narcotic expert for Hard Copy. When River Phoenix OD'd, I'm the one that went out and got interviewed on the sidewalk and talked about drugs. When uh, what's his name Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. got stoned and went to the wrong apartment or went to the wrong house and got in the wrong bed. I talked about heroin, heroin use and addiction and stuff. So I was uh, their hard copy, go-to guy for hard copy. And one guy recognized me. And uh, immediately I said, oh yeah. I said, I'm an actor. I said, I played a cop all the time. You're going to see me in all kinds of crap. And they go, yeah, you are. Oh, okay, all right. And at the same time, you're whipping out a 50 to buy dope. There you go. See, I, because of my size and the way I am, I don't drink or never drank or smoked or did drugs or any of that crap. I'm a businessman. I'm buying to resell. I don't, you want me to smoke with you to prove who I am? Go screw yourself. I was 10 guys down the street that want my money. You got to be able to say no at a time. You got to be able to have the balls to stand up to somebody and tell them no. You see what I'm saying? When these guys are trying to intimidate you to prove that you're not a cop, I don't have to prove nothing to you. I'm telling you I'm not, and if you don't believe me, screw you, I don't care. There's 10 guys down the street, and at the same time you're talking, they're pulling out a wad of cash. And they they forget what they're talking about, and I never had a problem. So after you do some of the counterterrorism stuff, you said you went to West L.A. For people right. who don't live in L.A., explain where West L.A. is, and talk to me a little bit about the your sort of work there as you worked your way through the LAPD? Well, when I came out, I was still a P2, which is not a, no stripes. Um, West LA is the west side of Los Angeles. It goes from, it goes from, uh, I think, Rock, Robertson, Robertson Boulevard on the east to, to the beach on the west. And it goes all the way north up to, the, to Malibu, just inside of Malibu, where the, where the sheriff's pick up. It's a very, it's one of the largest divisions in the city. Um, primarily upper, upper uh, middle class to, to upper class. Remember, OJ lived there in Brentwood. Uh, oh, a lot of movie stars, a lot of big shots live up, live right there in San Vicente. Live up in Brentwood. It's a well-to-do, high-end neighborhood. Uh, La Cienega and the Ten Freeway, the, the Santa Monica Freeway, is a it's a primarily black and Hispanic neighborhood. The Playboy Gangster Crips, the Hoover. Uh, out the Hoover, last Hoovers were what they were, but gangster neighborhood. I was assigned down there in a patrol car right out of, uh, right out of, when I got back, when I went to West LA, I was assigned to that neighborhood and I was a dope cop. So all I did was drugs and I had a knack for it. I could like watch people sell drugs. I watched buyers. I dripped the buyers off. It wasn't uncommon for me to take my probationer or my partner down and we drive down an alley I'd park in an alley, work in morning watch, which was 11 to 7, night, 11 at night till 7 in the morning. I'd park in an alley, back into a car park, carport in one of the apartment buildings with a police car, black and white, in uniform. And then I'd walk through the neighborhood, going through the cuts that the gangsters used to run from street to street, from block to block. I'd be in the middle of it, watching crooks, watching dope. I'd get on roofs and watch, uh, watch dope deals. And what would happen is I'd be watching the dope dealer and he'd be selling, to, cars would pull up or people would come up and buy. And, and we're talking minor dope, we're talking 20, $20 rocks, $10 rocks, you know, 
maybe a quarter ounce at the most. A little small amount, street level level. And I'm on the roof of a building across the street and watching this on a radio. And I'd have black and whites around the corner. And when the crooks drove around the corner, the buyers went around the corner. I'd have them stop and tell them where the dope was. And they'd grab them. They'd tell me, yeah, I got it. It was in the right pocket. Right there, I arrested the guy for possession. When I got when I finished up, we'd take him to the station. I'd arrest the guy for possession. And then when I got done dealing, got done or tired of sitting up there or getting close to the watch, I'd climb down, get my black and white, drive around the block. The crooks would hide, hide their dope in walls or trees or floor or whatever they did. And I'd walk up through the group and grab the seller, put them in handcuffs, and take them to jail. And he thought I was just... He couldn't figure out what I was doing because he, he never knew I was watching him. He used to do that all the time. That was that was fun. A lot of fun. Then after that, after a while, I, I got recruited from there. I did that for about three months. First three months from West L.A. And they had a plainclothes unit, which was called a special problems unit. And because of my arrest, I led the division every deep, every deployment period, which is a 20-day, 28-day period. I'd lead the division and arrest and ticket. I'd arrest more people. And, and, and again, it's, it's not a quota. It wasn't a quota. It wasn't uh, trying to impress anybody. My job is to go out and enforce the law and to put people in jail. And it was really easy to do. And I did that every single night. So I got recruited to this plainclothes unit. They used to break our balls and call us 21 Jump Street. Because there was seven or eight of us in uh, different races. And we all drove plain cars, wore plain clothes, and we did different things. We did a lot of burglars motor vehicle surveillance. Um, I got to talk to a church across from the Pico, uh, Rancho Pico golf course. I don't know if you ever heard of that. And there's a church across the street. I got up in the bell tower. I talked to the priest. He let me get up. I climbed into the bell tower, took lunch, sat up there with binoculars. And when these big rich people went to play golf, the crooks would come over and break into their cars. And I'm up in the bell tower with binoculars watching. And uh, when we filled up enough cars and, and burned all our tow trucks, I'd come down. We used to do that all the time. And people were thought we were wizards, but we weren't. We we're just doing tactical stuff, that's all. Um, <clears throat> I did that for about probably a year. I was I was the part of this view team. Special, special special problems unit for about a year. And then the captain called me in and they had a major problem in, in the neighborhood, the RD-69, which is where the Playboy Gangsters Crips and the Hoover Crips and all those guys, that's where their hood was. They had a major problem with those guys because the north end of their neighborhood is Pico and Robertson area, which is a high uh, Hasidic Jew neighborhood. And uh, the Hasidic Jews, for whatever reason, carried a lot of cash on them. And these gangmers would come up there like going to a store and robbing these guys to death. And so the captain called me up and said they wanted to put a car down there from six at night till two in the morning and they wanted me to run it. At first I told him no thanks. And his comment was, if you didn't have a choice, who do you want as a partner? <laughs> and I said, well, you're gonna send me no matter what. So I'm not gonna put anybody in this position. Whoever comes with me, comes with me. And that's what happened. And I did that until I uh, I was in West L.A., I think until September of 89. 
in which case I transfer it to Hollywood. And if I can skip ahead a little bit, I've been attacked for years about about knowing Gaines. Gaines I know Gaines, and Gaines knows me, because we both work West L.A. Division. Well, as it, and I, I know this for a fact, Gaines graduated the police academy in October of 1990. That's when he graduated the academy. He then was assigned to Northeast Division for probation. So the earliest he could have possibly got to West L.A. Division is November of 1991. I had already moved. I went from West L.A. in 89 to Hollywood. And I, I uh, worked Hollywood Patrol. The first rumor that we can put to bed is if Frank Liga had recognized or known Kevin Gaines prior to March 18th of 1997. Some people have speculated that there was this ongoing feud between Liga and Gaines that possibly surfaced in a real way when they met on the street in Hollywood. But as you hear, Frank didn't know Gaines prior to that day. But stay tuned next week where Frank takes me second by second of that fateful day in the aftermath of the shooting that would end up in the hands of LAPD's Robbery Homicide Division and Detective Russell Poole.